There are millions of people in America today, some sitting here, some listening to me in a, in a, through another vehicle, but they would say, Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the eternal son who left heaven, became a man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, was raised from the dead. And they believe those facts and they think because they believe those facts that they are saved and on their way to heaven. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the Book of Romans, and we find ourselves in a particular paragraph of Chapter 3 today that some have said is the most important paragraph in the Word of God. So let's join Dr. Brogy now as we look at Romans 3.22 and 23 in a message entitled, man's biggest problem. Would you take the Word of God, please, this morning and turn to the book of Romans chapter 3. If you're joining us for the first time, you'll be interested to know that we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this marvelous letter. We find ourselves studying a particular paragraph in the third chapter, which is the heart and soul of the epistle. I know of no other paragraph in all of the Bible that has helped me more in communicating my faith and in understanding the grace of God where I could grow in grace than the portion of Scripture that we are in. One great theologian in the early part of the last century said this of this paragraph, If it were possible for me to snatch from Scripture any one section and release all to the rest of the sands of time, I would choose this paragraph of Scripture. One of the great Protestant reformers said that in his judgment, This was the most important paragraph in all of the Word of God. I told you last week that if I were stranded on a desert island and I could only have one book of the Bible, that I would want the book of Romans. And if I could have just one paragraph out of that book, I would want the paragraph that we are examining. Now, it is packed with technical terms, crammed with great truths and words that you need to understand if you are to mature in your relationship with Christ. And so we're going to spend five weeks, as I said, just on this paragraph, and together we're going to cry out that God would help us to see and understand its truth as it relates to us, and as we profoundly understand it, that we might be able to simply communicate the gospel. Romans chapter 3, today we're going to focus on just verses 22 and 23, but I want to begin in verse 21 and read the whole paragraph. Follow along, would you? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, if you remember from Paul's introduction to this letter, we were introduced to its theme. He says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so we saw that the phrase, the righteousness of God, is critical to our ability to understand and to communicate the gospel. And so we're studying God's righteousness, which is repeated four times in this paragraph of Scripture. I hope you underlined them last week. In verse 21, he tells us that apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. In verse 22, he speaks of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 25, he tells us how Christ shed his own blood to demonstrate his, that is the Father's, righteousness. And then in verse 26, he says that God did this for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time when, as we will see, someone puts their faith in Christ. Now, as we noted last time, the phrase, the righteousness of God, is critical to understanding not just this paragraph, but the whole of Romans. So again, what did Paul mean by this? Is he simply referring to a divine attribute, that is to the character of God, that he is righteous in his person? Or is he not referring to a divine attribute, but to a divine activity where God acts righteously or justly? That's how Luther thought of it for a long time, and it terrified him. He wrote, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteousness. Is that what Paul has in mind? Or is he neither referring to a divine attribute or to a divine activity, but to a divine gift? That is, when God gives us freely out of his sheer grace and mercy the righteousness that we do not deserve. Well, we're going to see that in Romans, Paul uses it to refer to all three. As we unpack these verses in the days ahead, I hope the Holy Spirit will help us to see that the righteousness of God is that divine activity where God can take an unrighteous sinner and declare him righteous. That is, the righteousness of God is God's righteous way of declaring an unrighteous person righteous in his sight. So Paul uses it to describe a divine attribute, a divine activity, and a divine gift all at once. And when Luther understood that, his life forever changed. He was born anew, and God used him to take the gospel to an institution that for centuries had come into darkness. And so he writes concerning this paragraph of Scripture, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. And then he said, at last by the mercy of God, meditating night and day till I grasp the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it had become inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage, the one we're studying, had become to me the gateway to heaven. So let's see if we, with Luther, can truly understand this terminology.
that with Luther we might be able to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel because in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So think carefully and biblically. Think of where we are in this immediate context. Verses 21 through 26 really unfolds like a neat sermon. There's an introduction, there are three major points, and then there is a conclusion. The introduction, which we began last week when we turned the corner in verse 21, the introduction is found in verses 21 to 23. Then the first point, the first major point, is he gets into the meat of the sermon and he takes the introduction and he hangs meat on the skeleton. In verse uh, 24, he speaks of the source of justification. Then in the second part of 24, all the way through 25, he speaks of the means of justification, or excuse me, the grounds of our justification. First, he speaks of the source, God in his grace. Then he speaks of the ground, the cross of Jesus Christ. And then when we come to verses 26 through 29, he will deal with the means of our justification, namely through faith in Christ. And then he'll draw a conclusion and application in verses 30 and 31. So that's where we're going. Now, we're still in the introduction. We're going to spend most of our time this morning in verse 23. And I am calling the title of this morning's message, Man's Biggest Problem. Man's biggest problem is not psychological, it is sinful. We're all sinful and in need of a Savior. Now again, the introduction to the whole letter comes in the first 17 verses where he establishes the theme, which is the gospel of Christ. But then beginning in 118, remember we're in the doctrinal section of Romans. There's 1 through 8, the doctrinal section, 9 through 11, the national section, 12 through 16, the applicational section. And in the doctrinal section, he deals with three doctrines, condemnation, justification, sanctification. So in 118 to 320, he deals with the doctrine of condemnation. And he shows that the gospel is universally needed because man is universally guilty. That no matter where we are, in whatever realm of society that we, have find, finds our, we find ourselves, we have been given some revelation from God, and we have not lived up to that revelation, and therefore we are inexcusably guilty before God. But when you come to 321, you turn a corner in the book of Romans. You move from the doctrine of condemnation to the doctrine of justification. And so as he moves from the bad news, he goes into the good news when he says, but now, but now, one of the great buts in all of the word of God, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness that we need, God's righteousness is apart from the law. It's apart from your obedience to the Ten Commandments. It's apart from your keeping the uh, golden rule. It is not earned. It is not achieved. It is not a reward. It is to be humbly received. It is the gift of God. You don't dig deep into your pocket of works and say, here, God, here's the righteousness I bring to you. For God would say, no, your righteousness is as filthy rags. None of us on our own can produce a righteousness that is necessary to come into the presence and into a relationship with the Holy God. And so this righteousness that you desperately need if you're going to someday step into heaven is going to come on the basis of faith. Now the average man doesn't believe that. The average man in the street has a theology that basically says, if in the end I do more good than I do bad, 
then God will accept me. But Paul will smash that notion. He has already shown that man is tainted by sin such that our iniquity has made a separation between us and our God. He has already said in 3.20, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And so the obvious question is, if a man cannot be justified or saved or made righteous in God's sight through the works of the law, declared righteous, then what is the purpose of the law? For through the law, he writes, comes the knowledge of sin. It was not given so that you could work your way into heaven. We saw last time that the law of God is like a mirror. When you look into a physical mirror, you see your face is dirty. When you look into God's mirror, you see that your soul is dirty. God's law was not given to redeem you. It was given to reveal you. It was given to show you that there's a problem on the inside. One mirror reveals the outside. The law of God reveals the inside. Or in Luther's words, he said, the function of the law is not to justify, but to terrify, to drive us to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I hope that you do not want to appear before the judge of all mankind in your own righteousness. If you do, it will be an eternal disaster. But now, he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The Christian Standard Version says it has been revealed. The Net Bible says it has been attested by. NIV 84 says it has been made known. Man's need for God's righteousness is not some new truth, not some new idea, not some Pauline doctrine. It is as old as the book of Genesis. It has been manifested, made known, revealed. How? Being testified or witnessed to by the law and the prophets. The law, the first five books of the Bible, and the rest of the Old Testament bear witness to the fact that God has had only one way in all of time to save people. Don't ever think that people in the Old Testament were saved one way and people in this dispensation are saved in another. That is not true. God has always saved people on the same basis. Now, not knowing his name, they believe Christ, Messiah, would come. They were looking forward to what he would accomplish, knowing his name today, such that the Bible can say there is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now that his name has been revealed, men must believe on Christ. We don't look ahead, we look back. And so Paul is saying the law and the prophets, what today we call the Old Testament, bears witness to the fact that men are not saved by their good deeds. Jesus said, I am the way. Not your deeds, not your baptism, not your good deeds. I am the way. No one can come to the Father but through me. God has never saved people by good deeds. If he saved some by good deeds, then he would save all by good deeds. But he's always saved on the same basis. And so the law was never a means to salvation. It was a revelation of how we need to be saved through faith in Christ. And again, this righteousness is not something that God has closed up in a corner. He hasn't hidden it in some closet. He is the God who wants to reveal it to you. And so we read, if you remember in Romans 1.17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How? From faith to faith. And if you are here for the message in Romans 1, 
uh, 18 through the end of the chapter, one of the things that we discussed is the question, what about people who have never heard the name of Christ? And we saw that they are just as guilty, they are lost, they are under the wrath of God. Why? Because God has given a testimony of himself to everyone everywhere, no matter who you are or where you live. God, either through the creation or his divine attributes and eternal power are clearly seen or through the conscience within has revealed himself to all men. And if a man responds to faith, God gives him more faith. If he responds to light, he gives him more light and eventually he gives him the light of the gospel. But some people forget our responsibility for a moment because it doesn't change. But some people never hear the plan of salvation for the simple reason they won't respond to the most general of all revelation. And if a man won't respond to general revelation, then God won't give him specific revelation. God practices what he preaches when he tells us that there is a time to withhold the gospel pearl. And so Paul says that this righteousness is received by faith. That was the very point he made when he quotes the prophet Habakkuk. Now, it's important we understand that not all faith is true faith. Hold your finger here, would you? And turn back a few pages to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 31. Turn there, would you? Uh, As you're turning, we'll come back to it. Let me just read it. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. In this chapter of Scripture, the Lord Jesus describes a group of people who had a false faith, who were dead in their sin. And yet, what is very interesting is that this verse says that these people had believed him. But again, every time the New Testament uses the word believed without the preposition in, it is not always referring to saving faith. And I say saving faith, maybe we should better say genuine faith because faith doesn't save. Christ saves. Faith is just the channel that receives what Christ has done. But believed or believing all by itself doesn't always refer to genuine faith. The context must determine. Remember some time ago we studied Acts 8 with Simon the sorcerer when Philip comes and preaches the gospel in Samaria. And it says, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized. That's what a new believer does if he wants to confess his faith before men, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, the Bible says. Simon the sorcerer, if you remember, quote-unquote, believed, and he got baptized. But you soon discover as you read Acts 8, Peter says, you are in the gall of bitterness, you are in the bondage of iniquity. He was still a slave to sin because his faith was here in the head, but it never truly touched the heart. In the parable of the sower, when Jesus describes a man who goes out and sows seed, The word, of course, being the seed, the various soils representing the various kinds of hearts upon which the seed falls. And he says in Luke 8 that there were certain people, those on the rocky soil, are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, apostatize. They fall away. They believe here, but not here. 
Now, these are not people who had salvation and lost it. You can't have it and lose it. If you lost it, you never had it to begin with. These are people who had an intellectual faith who had never truly believed on Christ in Christ alone. It was not a genuine faith. James deals with the same problem in his little letter when he says, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Your faith is not a genuine faith if something doesn't happen after you believe. Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand the Bible. The Bible does not say, we're, we're, say that we're saved by faith plus works, but it does say that, and teach that we are saved by a faith that does work. And so in the next verse, James will say, someone may well say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, if it's a true faith, your life will change. And so speaking of an intellectual kind of faith only, he says, you believe that God is well, is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The demons have a great bunch of orthodoxy, even in some of the written confessions that they make in the Gospels. But some people have nothing more than a demon faith, a fickle faith, a pseudo-faith. And so here in John chapter 8, he describes such a people, people who had quote-unquote believed. And there are millions of people in America today, some sitting here, some listening to me in a, in that, through another vehicle. But they would say, Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the eternal son who left heaven, became a man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, was raised from the dead. And they believe those facts. And they think because they believe those facts that they are saved and on their way to heaven. In fact, this idea of fickle faith is not new to John 8. He's already described it twice in this gospel. If you remember in John 6, when he does the miracle of feeding some 20,000 people, when he moves from the miracle to the meaning of the miracle, and he addresses some hard things like sin and the cost of discipleship, things that many do not want to preach today, the crowd went from, 10, from some 20,000 to a handful of people. It says in that passage of Scripture that many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Why? Because they were not genuine converted disciples. And remember, in this chapter of Scripture, these are people who with great orthodoxy called him the prophet. Not just a prophet, but the prophet. The one that Moses spoke of back in Deuteronomy 18. The one who would be Messiah. And so the Bible says they wanted to make him king but they had not been converted. I was trying to help a person this week see that they needed to call upon Jesus Christ in genuine faith. Oh, I've been saved. But she said, I don't know why I don't have an assurance of my salvation. I said, let me ask you a very difficult question and I just want you to be honest with me. Are you sleeping with this one you call your fiance? She said, yes, I am pastor. I said, is this new, recent? It's been going on for a decade. And I said, listen, the Bible teaches when a person is genuinely born again, there's a change that takes place. Now, don't be deceived for a moment. Let him who thinks he stand be careful lest he fall. For no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. Any Christian has the capacity to commit any kind of sin. 
That's why Paul will say in Galatians, walk by the Spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the sinful nature. And then he says, the desires of the sinful nature are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Those are some of the works of the sinful nature. And then he goes on to say that those who practice such things, another translation says, those who live like this, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Because if that's what marks our life, then we are marked still as dead in sin. And so we're studying on Wednesday night that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. By this, the children of God and the children of devil are obvious. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. And so there are people all across America who know all the right answers, who understand justification by grace through faith, and someday, unfortunately, at the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord will say, I never knew them. Not I once knew you, I never knew you. You know, it deeply concerns me what is going on in our nation and what is going on in our society and what is going on in the church. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things, because of what things? Because of sensuality, idolatry, and immorality. Paul says the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You know, I, I see sometimes the, this thing we call Facebook. Oh boy, here's another mother in a bikini. You know, I guess they don't listen to what I have to say. And you see these teenagers and they're parading themselves and even these young men trying to look studly and, you know, no shirt on and flexing their muscles. And why is that? They're either idolatrously in love with themselves, worshiping themselves, or sometimes it's that seductive look because they're calling out to members of the opposite sex. Or sometimes they haven't done those things, but they are characterized by the spirit of sensuality. And the Bible says, listen, that is a work of the flesh, impurity, sensuality. And those who live like that, if that's the spirit of your heart, you have proof positive that you have a pseudo faith, that your faith is not genuine. And so understand here in John 8, 31, Every time the Bible uses the word believe or even the word disciple, it's not in reference to a genuine Christian. And so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had, quote unquote, believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now, when you read that verse at first, it seems rather innocuous. You don't know whether or not these people have the genuine item. But again, the context bears it out. You come down to verse 34. He calls them slaves of sin. He says in verse 37 that his word has no place in their lives. In verse 44, he says they are of their father, the devil, doing the devil's desires. And in verse 55, he calls them liars. And taken collectively, those are characteristics of a person who's never been born again. These are like the folks on rocky ground in the parable of the sower. And these who had, quote unquote, believed, when you come down to verse 45, he says, you do not believe me. That tells us it's not real because you cannot turn off real faith, true faith. If we have truly been born again, our lifestyle will reflect our change in position. It's been written that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And so it's critical that believers take a sober look at their lives to see if they are truly representing Christ. To listen again to today's message entitled, Man's Biggest Problem, 
Visit our website at searchthescriptures.org or get the Search the Scriptures app from the iTunes Store or Google Play Store and search under the Book of Romans. And of course, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or a DVD copy of Man's Biggest Problem, program ROM13. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at Man's Biggest Problem. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.